Our Hebrew lesson for this morning comes from Exodus 3. And this is continuing the story of Moses approaching the burning bush that we read a few weeks ago at the beginning of this series. Starting in verse 11, and I'm going to jump around a bit through the end of chapter 4 to give you a picture of what's going on. But Moses said to God, Who am I to go to Pharaoh and to bring the Israelites out of Egypt? God said, I will be with you, and this will show you that I'm the one who sent you. After you bring the people out of Egypt, you will come back here and worship God on this mountain. But Moses said to God, if I now come to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your ancestors has sent me to you, they are going to ask me, what's this God's name? What am I supposed to say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. Say to the Israelites, I am has sent me to you. Then Moses replied, but what if they don't believe me or pay attention to me? They might say to me, the Lord didn't appear to you. The Lord said to him, what's that in your hand? And Moses replied, a shepherd's rod. The Lord said, throw it down on the ground. So Moses threw it on the ground, and it turned into a snake. Moses jumped back from it. Then the Lord said to Moses, reach out and grab that snake by its tail. So Moses reached out and grabbed it, and it turned back into a rod in his hand. Do this, and they will believe that the Lord, the God of their ancestors, Abraham's God, Isaac's God, and Jacob's God, has in fact appeared to you. But Moses said to the Lord, my Lord, I've never been able to speak well. Not yesterday, not the day before, and certainly not now, since you've been talking to your servant. I have a slow mouth and a thick tongue. Then the Lord said to him, who gives people the ability to speak? Who is responsible for making them unable to speak or hard of hearing, sighted or blind? Isn't it I, the Lord? Now go, I'll help you speak, and I will teach you what you should say. But Moses said, please, my Lord, just send somebody else. Friends, this is the word of God for you, the people of God. Thanks be to God. And now I'd like to dismiss our kindergartner through second graders to go with Pastor Renee to children's worship if they are excited to go this morning. Look at y'all. And so now, gracious God, in these moments, may the words of my mouth, may the meditations of all of our hearts together in this sacred space be found pleasing to you, O Lord, you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Following the release of Star Wars Episode One, Natalie Portman was accepted as an incoming student at Harvard University. But she later said of that experience, I felt like there had to have been some kind of mistake. 
that I wasn't smart enough to be in this company at Harvard and that every time I opened my mouth, I would have to prove that I wasn't just some dumb actress. Maya Angelou once said, I've written 11 books, but each time I think, "Uh uh-oh, I've run a game on everyone and they're going to find me out now. John Steinbeck was known for saying, I'm not a writer. I've just been fooling myself and everyone else. And Sheryl Sandberg, chief operating officer at Facebook, said of her college experience, every time I was called upon in class, I was sure that I was about to embarrass myself. Every time I took a test, I was positive that it had gone badly. And every time I didn't embarrass myself or even excelled, I believed that I had just fooled everyone once again, and one day the gig would be up. What all of these people have in common is that they have experienced what is known as the imposter syndrome. Psychologist Pauline Clance was the first to discover the imposter syndrome back in the 70s. She began to notice a trend among many of the female college students in her practice because even though they had high grades, they often commented that they didn't believe they deserved them. They just got lucky. And even some thought that their acceptance must have been some kind of admissions error. And while Clance knew that these fears were completely unfounded, she could also remember feeling that exact same way when she was in college. So she began to study what became known as the imposter syndrome. When people experience significant feelings of fraudulence, as if they couldn't possibly be good enough for the actual situations in which they find themselves. Now, more recent studies show that those who are different from their peers are more likely to have the imposter syndrome. Like women in high-tech careers or first-generation college students. But this also affects people across the spectrum of gender, race, age, sexuality, and a range of different occupations. In fact, a 2022 article in the Journal of Internal Medicine found that up to 82% of us experience the imposter syndrome at some point within our lives. And so if that's the case for you, if you've ever felt like an imposter, Or maybe if you feel like an imposter in this very space today, I think we find some good company in today's scripture reading. Because I think that Moses, one of these heroes of our faith, seems to be experiencing the imposter syndrome when God calls him to go up against Pharaoh and to deliver the Israelite people from slavery in the land of Egypt. For almost 40 verses after this epic burning bush moment, Moses comes up with one excuse after another about why he doesn't think he's cut out for the job that God is calling him to. 
He says things like, what if the Israelites ask me questions about how all this is going to work out? What am I supposed to say to them? What if they don't believe me or won't listen to me? What if I'm not a strong enough speaker and don't get the right words across? What if I get nervous and my words get jumbled up? What if I can't say things correctly? And the list goes on and on and on. I didn't even read all of the verses for you today. Until finally he says, I just don't think I can do this, God. Please just send somebody else. You know, we grow up hearing about Moses and we hear about him in the basket and the Nile River. And we hear about him at the burning bush. And we hear about Moses parting the waters of the Red Sea. And we hear about Moses receiving the Ten Commandments and all of these really epic, memorable moments. But we don't often focus on this part of the story. Maybe because it's much more human. We tend to focus on Moses' epic moments, like the one at the burning bush. And God telling him that he is standing on holy ground. But the truth of the matter is that Moses had a whole host of reasons why he couldn't imagine God calling someone like him, a refugee who was just trying to stay alive, to do something like this. Now, we can critique Moses all that we want to, but the reality is that you or I probably wouldn't have done anything differently, would we? When I look back on some of the times in my life when I can now sense that God was calling me to do something, my initial response was almost always to begin by making a very detailed list in my mind of all of the reasons why that just wasn't going to work. I will never forget, and I will never let him live this down, when Bob Cunningham called me in the pastor search process in the fall of 2019. And I think we'd had a couple interviews at this point, and he said, by the way, we forgot to mention that the church is going to need to do a pretty big capital campaign soon after you start to raise a few million dollars to replace our HVAC and some other building repairs. That's not going to be a problem, is it? Of course, what Bob didn't know is that I already had a whole list of other problems and other reasons why this just wasn't the right time for me, why I couldn't leave my previous church yet. It wasn't the right time in my career. I wasn't the right person for the job. And all of that was before any of us even had a glimpse of what was lurking around the corner in 2020. It's amazing how we can try to out-logic God's calling on our lives, isn't it? As if God has any sort of responsibility to operate by logic to begin with. And yet, in a whole host of ways, I kept receiving what I can only describe as this holy nudge, inviting me to take that next brave step forward. And I believe it's this same holy nudge that beckons us as Highland to take our next brave steps forward, too. We've talked all month about Highland being sacred space for all of us. But today I would like to offer that a sacred space is only significant to the extent that we allow it to impact or change us in some way. Think about it this way. 
Moses doesn't have this incredible experience with God in the wilderness. Post a photo on Instagram with the hashtag blessed at the burning bush and then walk away from it. And if he had, would the story be significant to us at all? You see, the reality is that the story is so significant because it marks a turning point, not only for Moses, but for the people of God. And it's what happens after the burning bush that makes this story significant at all. Because somehow his encounter at the burning bush gives Moses the courage to pursue what God is calling him to do next. And even though we read that Moses asks God to send someone else and comes up with a list of all the reasons why he can't do this, we also know from all the chapters that follow that when Moses walks away from the burning bush that day, somehow he has been forever changed. Author Kathy Kang writes that God knows that Moses has the imposter syndrome but essentially gives him no room to back out of the situation. She says God enlists the help of Moses' brother Aaron as his wingman, reminds Moses that his shepherd's staff has superpowers, and then pushes Moses out into the wilderness. And so Moses goes. He doesn't know the rest of the story. He must have so many questions about if and how it's all going to work out. And honestly, even if he did know all that was going to happen, that there would be rivers of blood and plagues of frogs and long periods of darkness and loss of lives and years and years wandering aimlessly in the wilderness, would he ever have taken that next brave step forward? I don't know. But what we do know is that God gives him this wingman and a pretty cool shepherd's staff and a pillar of cloud to guide him by day and fire by night. And somehow Moses keeps taking his next brave step. You see, that's the thing about sacred spaces. I think there's spaces where transformation can happen within us which means that they're actually quite dangerous. They're risky. And just like the burning bush, they never leave us where we started on the journey. But do you and I approach our sacred spaces that way, particularly this sacred space that we share as Highland? I love how writer Annie Dillard talks about the often unacknowledged or misjudged power of the church's sacred space today. She says, on the whole, I do not find Christians outside of the catacombs sufficiently sensible of their conditions. Does anyone have the foggiest idea what sort of power we blithely invoke when we gather together? Or, as I suspect, does no one believe a word of it? Churches are like children playing on the floor with their chemistry sets, mixing up a batch of TNT on a Sunday morning. It is madness to wear ladies' straw hats and velvet hats to church. She says, we should all be wearing crash helmets. Ushers should issue life preservers and signal flares. They should lash us to our pews. 
For the sleeping God may wake someday, or the waking God may draw us to where we can never return. Highland, if this month's capital campaign were only about what happens here in this room, in this sacred space, week after week, I honestly don't know that I would be all that interested. And it's not that I don't believe that what happens in this space is significant. On the contrary, I believe that what happens in this room is so significant because of the power that it holds to call us out of this sacred space week after week into the world that God is calling us to serve and into the lives that God is calling us to live. I think that it is what happens in this sacred space that calls Noah Cooksey out into the classroom every week, just like he said to me, a week ago. Charlie Sewer, Emily Stewart, Becky Hines, Becca Potter, so many of you who are transforming lives week after week in the classroom, I believe it's this sacred space that fuels you and calls you out in that work. I believe it's the sacred space that calls out Missy Smith to work with community jail bonds, and it calls Roz Hines to advocate for women's rights and voting rights. I believe it's the sacred space that calls out Terry Connolly to do the beautiful work she's doing with the Safe Passage Initiative. It gives Larry Gray the courage to manage a huge health system affecting thousands of lives in our community, and Drew Harston the stamina to step into the operating room each week. I believe it's what happens in this sacred space that gives Sharon Sanders and Becky Smith and Beth Hedges the courage to inspire the next generation of social workers. Mary Burks to walk alongside the next generation of chaplains and Jan Foran to teach the next generation of nurses. Friends, my list could go on and on and on, but what I'm saying is that like the burning bush, I believe that this sacred space invites us in and then continually beckons us out to join in the work of God, creating a world where justice and love are abundant. The question is, are we like Moses saying, here am I, God, or... Please just send somebody else. You may be familiar with the name Edwin Hubble, who was one of the most renowned astronomers of the 20th century. According to NASA's website, Edwin Hubble's discoveries transformed the frontier of scientific knowledge. His work took us beyond the Milky Way and pushed humanity to the edge of the cosmic frontier, placing us in an ever-expanding universe with a myriad of galaxies beyond our own. Today, the Hubble Space Telescope soars high above the Earth's atmosphere and serves as our window into the universe, upholding Edwin Hubble's vision to explore as far as our curiosity will take us. What you may not know is that Edwin had always wanted to be an astronomer, but his father was adamantly opposed to the idea and insisted that he be a lawyer instead. So Edwin sent off to Oxford, England to study law in 1909. But a few years later, Edwin's father passed away, 
And so he returned home from England to help look after his mother and siblings during this transition in the new town where they were living in Louisville, Kentucky. They lived at 1287 Everett Avenue, less than two blocks away from Highland. Well, when Roz Hines, one of our deacons, discovered this history, it piqued her curiosity. Because at a time when people normally walked to their neighborhood church, she wondered if the Hubble family might have attended Highland. And so she dove into our church's archives. And what do you know? She found that Helen and Lucy Lee Hubble, Edwin's sisters, were baptized here at Highland on the very first Sunday that the sanctuary here was opened in this sacred space. Which means it is pretty likely that Edwin Hubble and his family spent at least some time here within these stone walls, here sitting in these same pews, here in our sacred space. Now, it was around this same time that Edwin's career began to shift. He went back to his first love and started teaching physics and mathematics across the river at New Albany High School. In fact, it is from this time that we have the very first photograph of Edwin Hubble with a telescope that was taken that year. Then he left Louisville for good in August 1914 when he headed off to Yerkes Observatory to officially begin his career as an astronomer. Now here's the thing. I realize that I can only take this story so far. (laughs) I have no idea what Hubble's relationship was with the church, if he had a relationship with Highland at all. If this could have been a burning bush type space for him or if he wanted anything to do with it. But his story is a reminder to us that we have no idea who is among us now and who will be part of this community of faith long after all of us have gone. And how the Spirit might move within us in this sacred space to stir our imagination and wonder and curiosity toward galaxies we haven't even thought possible. And so today, on this Commitment Sunday, may we give of ourselves to this holy work so that Highland can continue to offer a sacred and brave space for everyone for the future astronomers and justice workers and teachers and world changers for generations to come. May it be so, Highland. Amen.